The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement. Hello and welcome to the ASCO Guidelines podcast series. My name is Shannon McKernan and today I have something a little bit different for you. Instead of interviewing just one person about a guideline publication, I'm interviewing Dr. Nalima Dendalori from U.S. Oncology, Dr. Manish Shaw from Will Cornell Medical College, and Dr. Mariana Chavez-McGregor from University of Texas and D. Anderson Cancer Center. The immediate past chair, current chair, and current and chair-elect of the ASCO Clinical Practice Guidelines Committee, as well as Tom Oliver, director of the ASCO Guidelines Program. They're all here today to talk about different aspects of the ASCO guideline development. Thank you all for being here today at ASCO headquarters. So first, can you tell us why ASCO develops guidelines and why they're so important? Sure. Um, so at the clinical practice guidelines, I think, um, have been of increasing importance over the last decade or two. Um, they provide an opportunity to um, give us uniform care, uh, provide uh, sort of evidence-based best practices, um, and we hope that this will allow for better outcomes, uh, especially in an environment where we're doing increasingly multidisciplinary care. Um, it's important for physicians to have access to um, guidelines. I think one of the key things is that medicine oncology is changing very rapidly, um, and um, even in the last you know, five years, we have five new drugs approved for melanoma, for example. So I think that the guidelines um, allow for evidence and uniformity in practice to give our patients the best outcomes. So clinical practice guidelines do not provide a mandate for how to treat our patient that is in clinic with us. However, they do give us a framework and guidance on how to translate all the information that we have coming at us and how to apply that to the person that's in front of us. And Tom, can you tell the listeners about the methodology that ASCO uses in creating its guideline products? ASCO follows the uh, Institute of Medicine and the Council of Special uh, Medical Societies uh, tenets for trustworthy guideline development. This includes, among other things, a rigorous conflict of interest policy, no industry involvement in guideline development or uh, topic selection, a rigorous systematic review of the literature to um, give a quality assessment of the best available literature in which to inform the panels of uh, the, to make the best recommendations, multidisciplinary <clears throat> panels that include uh, patient representation to help form uh, robust and trustworthy uh, guideline recommendations. So all these combined put a package together. The, the evidence is assessed. It's as, assessed in a rigorous and transparent manner to produce those trustworthy recommendations. So, so, I, maybe I, this is Manish. I would add that I think that it's been actually quite impressive. The methodology is in fact quite rigorous. I think we've said it like ten times. The um, you know the panels are. <laughs> Um, well thought out, and the the ASCO staff actually do a very comprehensive review 
of the literature, the randomized trials, and there's also a methodology committee that uh, reviews some of the aspects of development. For example, a recent thing that we worked on was whether or not we should include abstract data um, in guidelines. And you know, there wasn't a formal sort of um, uh, sort of policy on this, so this is something that came up in real world practice, and and it was taken up by the methodology committee, and then. Um, you know, approved to a certain extent for our guideline use. So I think this formal process that offers transparency and rigor and um, comprehensiveness actually strengthens the guidelines quite a bit. One of the other things, this is Tom, that we added was an open comment process where uh, users and clinicians and practitioners can comment on the guidelines prior to final release and that way we can get the perspective of the community and others in helping us form the guideline recommendations. And this is all available on our methods manual that's available on our website as well. Great, and how have you all seen the guidelines portfolio grow? And can you talk a little bit about how we prioritize the topics? So over the last several years, we've had an exponential growth in the topics that we cover and the number of guidelines. Uh, before, I think that we used to have a few guidelines a year. Now, each committee meeting, we review several guidelines. Additionally, we've uh, broadened the scope of what we write guidelines about, including not only disease-specific guidelines, but also spanning the spectrum of cancer care, whether it's survivorship, prevention, palliative care, supportive care. Regarding how we prioritize our topics, we actively solicit topics from the membership at large, and then we have guideline advisory groups that look at these recommendations and go from there regarding what we should develop. Also, we use a signals approach. For example, at our annual meeting, if there are some important data that are presented and published, we, may, we want to make sure and stay current, so we change the or update guidelines based on that signals approach as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the just to add to that, um, the um, intent of the guideline sort of uh, advisory groups and and sort of in terms of choosing the guidelines are are really trying to pick the guidelines that are the most clinically relevant and where the most controversy is, um, and so it's it's actually a little bit more than the management of a certain disease that you might see in certain pathways, but it's actually the most relevant topics where the most controversy is to provide the best evidence-based data um, where there is. So I, I think that's a unique aspect. One of the most popular guidelines, actually, even one of, I think, the first guidelines was the guidelines on nausea vomiting. And, and you, know, you wouldn't see that um, as part of any kind of disease-specific guideline, but it offers an ability for ASCO to service uh, important uh, message to, uh, you know, across all practitioners. The other evolution in the guideline process has been that there has uh, been broader uh, engagement and dissemination, and therefore we're trying to reach not just the practitioners that are in academic circles, but the end user, whether it's in Europe or whether it's a community oncologist practicing in rural America. And that has been, uh, and social media has been instrumental to helping us do that. And then what can you tell us 
about panel representation and what kind of experts are chosen to write the guidelines? For us, it's crucial to have a really broad representation in our panels, and there's a lot of work that goes um, into the process of selecting the panel members. We make sure that we have a multidisciplinary representation, so while many of our guidelines might have a majority of medical oncologists, we try, whenever relevant, to have surgeons, radiation oncologists, palliative care specialists involved. We also have national and international experts on the topic. We make an effort to to try to include a broad range of um, experts in their careers, meaning we want senior leaders, but we also want to incorporate up-and-coming leaders in the field. We make an effort to include people from academic institutions that are different. We don't want the same people from the same institutions or the same uh, part of the country. We also make an important effort to include community members. They're the, the colleagues that are treating our patients in the community, and they should be represented to make sure that our guidelines are feasible in day-to-day practice. And of crucial importance, we always have a patient advocate in our panels because we believe in hearing the perception for from our patients in, in what the guidelines are going to recommend. We also have uh, resource-stratified guidelines that uh, are applicable to different settings in uh, across the globe. And for those, we choose slightly different panels from uh, much more global representation But even for our regular guidelines, we do want to have global perspective international members participate in in the guideline development so that we can have that global and broad reach that we're looking for. And what about the review process? How does the committee approve guidelines to be published? Yeah, the review process is actually pretty comprehensive, just as the guidelines sort of the creation process. Um, The initially, um, the panel that's convened um, works closely together uh, with the ASCO staff to come up with recommendations that address the specific questions in the guideline, um, and, um, and and there there has to be greater than seventy five percent sort of agreement with the recommendations to even sort of um, move forward. So once the guideline is actually created, um, then um, it uh, comes to the uh, Greater Clinical Practice Guidelines Committee for a formal review and vote. Uh, so typically two to three people will um, independently review the guidelines, make uh, recommendations and comments, and then that is brought to a formal committee meeting for discussion. And then um, after there's an appropriate discussion period as well as uh, kind of a, a question answer period with the guideline chairs, um, the guideline is voted on. Um, with uh, different recommendations such as approve or um, consider modifications or uh, come back to committee, come back to the chairs or, or to even reject. So I think it's a pretty comprehensive process um, and it's intended to be all-inclusive. So we make sure that we hear everyone's point of view. And the practice guideline committee is empowered by the board to act on behalf of ASCO to approve the guidelines. So it's the voice of ASCO that is being represented. So we take great steps to make sure that the products that are being produced are uh, as rigorously developed, reviewed, and approved as possible. In addition, we also have partnered with other organizations uh, that if we partner with two other organizations, then those organizations will go through their review and approval process as well, and we'll coordinate all the responses and 
put forward a, a product that all organizations uh, approve as official documents. I think it should also be mentioned that once we approve the guideline, and the guideline goes on um, publication and it's submitted, whether at the JC or JOP, there is another independent review as part of the journal um, for the guideline to be approved and published. So it adds to another layer to this comprehensive review that, that Manish was talking about. The other thing that has increased in the recent years is the collaboration with all of the organizations, our sister organizations such as ASTRO, and I think that strengthened our uh, guideline product as well, and our international collaborations such as Cancer Care Ontario. Exactly. We, we're trying to partner with as many organizations that develop guidelines in a similar fashion to us. Uh, so that we can work together, reduce duplication of effort, and put out harmonious guideline recommendations across credible development groups. And this also increases uptake across other audiences beyond medical oncology. Let's look forward now. What is the vision for ASCO guidelines as we look into the future of oncology and healthcare? Well, as the practice of oncology becomes more complex and we incorporate newer therapeutics, I think the role of the guideline committee becomes more relevant for the organization. What we want is to continue to expand our guideline portfolio to uh, deliver high-quality products and on diverse topics that can be relevant for the membership to incorporate in their practice. Of course, we have to continue developing improved methodology for the development of guidelines and to endorse guidelines from other organizations in a consistent manner. We need to continue working on dissemination. And as Nalima was mentioning, I think social media is something and new technologies that it's going to help us a lot to make sure that our guidelines make it to the point of care in a practical manner so then we can work on implementation. So I think as we look to, to the future, we, we're trying to align our goals to ask us goals and priorities to really help um, our our members to take you know care of patients, which is what what we do. And I think guideline development can be thought of in, in four basic uh, buckets. One is development, increase the development uh, across broader scope across different areas, updating, keeping all of our products up to date, which is a struggle, especially as we develop more and more guidelines. But it's one that's important that users have to know that they can come to ASCO to get updated, clinically relevant information. The other dissemination, where we try to, through social media and uh, all other dissemination outlets, try to broaden our reach of our guidelines. And then implementation, as Mariana mentioned, that ultimately we'd like to get our recommendations embedded into health systems in a digital format, electronic format, to be accessible at the point of care and health guide practice wherever and, and whenever uh, the patient clinician encounter occurs. To add to that about being implemented within health systems, one thing we do within our ASCO guidelines is not only have comprehensive discussions, but we do have bulleted points that clinicians can reference quickly at the point of care, called yeah. the bottom line. Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, you know, hearing my colleagues and, and reviewing the process, I think it's actually quite, for me personally, quite impressive. I mean, I think we're surrounded by 
leaders in oncology who really know a lot about what they're doing and then they're they're really adding a lot of value to the entire process here. And I think we, we want that to come out in the guidelines sort of, you know, as, as they get uh, disseminated and implemented. I think that uh, through the different aspects like the podcast that you're hearing, the social media, we have an ASCO app um, that, you know, should allow for easy access to the guidelines. Um, we we want to make it easy and we want to integrate it better. Um, some of the things that we may look to in the future is actually linking our guidelines with measures or with cancer link, other things like that. But these are things that are uh, perhaps coming down the, down the pike. Thank you all for your time today and thank you for your insights on the ASCO Guidelines Program. For all those listening, you can ask, access all of our guidelines at www.asco.org guidelines. For information at your fingertips, you can also download the ASCO Guidelines app on Apple and Android devices. And we have digital and print pocket cards available through, through Guideline Central. And if you're subscribed to this podcast, you can hear interviews with authors on all of our most recently published guidelines. And new episodes will be coming soon. So be sure to check back and rate and review the podcast on iTunes so others can find it.